Okay, there's a missionary I want to tell you about uh, named John G. Patton. He was a missionary in the uh, mid-1800s. He's a Presbyterian missionary. He and his wife, when she was pregnant, sailed for the New Hebrides Islands, which is just was off the coast of Australia, on April 16th in 1858 at the age of 33. Uh, they reached the appointed island of Tana on November 5th. So they sailed from April 16th, and they got there on the 5th of November. So you got to sail. It's a very long trip. However, before going, uh, John Patton was discouraged from being a missionary in these islands. He was warned not to go because of the people groups that were there. They're very unreached people, but he's still warned not to go. Well, why would you tell someone, hey, don't be a missionary there? Why, why would you tell someone? Here's the answer. To the best of our knowledge, the New Hebrides people had no Christian influence before John Williams and James Harris, two missionaries beforehand from London, from London, landed there about 20 years prior to John Patton. So the, the only time we think someone got there was 20 years before John Patton got there. Two men, both these missionaries, were killed and eaten by cannibals on the island within minutes of arriving. Now you know why he was warned not to go. You will be killed and eaten by cannibals. And he actually went and stayed for years. If you read the story, it is tremendously encouraging. But the question I want to ask is, is there risk in the Christian life that is right? Is faith to a Christian, should it, should it be a bold faith? Is it okay to have a risk, a risky faith? Does faith require us to do things that are perhaps costly? I'd venture to say that one of the main descriptors of the Christian faith is that it's, it's bold, it takes risk, it does hard things. Prior to going to these islands, Patton was confronted by a Mr. Dickinson, who was part of their, I think part of their church or part of their sending group. And he said this, the cannibals... You will be eaten by cannibals. And Patton responded this way, quote, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, so you're old, <laughs> and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. In the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. So John Patton believed that to know Christ and to have him is worth forsaking everything for the sake of faith. And for people to hear about Christ is even worth it just as much. He knew that, that to lean upon Christ, to sit at his feet, is worth forsaking all things. You, you know this passage from Mark chapter 8, I'm sure. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, Jesus, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? It's only those who, who venture by faith, who come to Christ, deny all hope and self, by faith alone cling to Jesus, will be saved. And John Patton's saying it's better to lose everything than to just sit and do nothing. In Ruth chapter 3, we see that faith pursues. Faith is costly. It ventures. It seeks. It's risky. It lays, it, it lays bare the weight of forsaking all to gain Christ. And today in Ruth chapter 3, my hope is that we'll see three marks of true biblical faith as Ruth goes to meet Boaz. So if you're unfamiliar with where we are, remember in Ruth chapter 1, uh, there was 
Naomi and her husband left because of the famine, and her sons die. One marries Ruth, and one marries Orpah in chapter 1. There's a famine. <clears throat> After 10 years, Naomi's husband and her son-in-laws both die. They venture back to Bethlehem because there's bread there. And in chapter 2, we hear the story of Ruth meeting Boaz, who is a, a kinsman redeemer. He's someone who's related uh, to Ruth, and, or related to Naomi, rather, because Ruth is an outcast. And she meets him in a field and hopes maybe he can marry me and help me and take care of me. It's kind of, it's kind of God's law in the Old Testament. Was that someone would come alongside a widow who was barren and would help him, would marry her, would help her. And chapter 2 is all about meeting Boaz and thinking, oh, I actually might have a shot. This guy's compassionate and godly and gracious, and I could actually, maybe he could help me. And Ruth chapter 3 is, is the further meeting. This is kind of the, 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 key, the crucial point in their meeting. Look at verses 1 through 5 here. We're going through three marks of faith. Number one, faith has a true hope. So Naomi has a plan, if you notice, in 1 through 5. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that I may be well with you? Is not Boaz a relative whose young women you were with? See, he was winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So she seeks rest for Ruth, right? Instead of laboring in the field for endless days, being at risk and danger because there's no fences, there's not... You need protection in the middle of the field. Ruth says, you need rest. You, you need protection. I need to find what's best for you. It's worth noting that the best friends or family are those who care most for your soul, isn't it? Do you have family members like that? Do you have friends like that? More importantly, perhaps, are you like that? Blessed are those who care for others souls. Spiritual realities must be treated with the highest priority, right? This is Naomi's greatest care was, I need to find you lasting rest. Whether it be our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, or family, desire their spiritual good as much as you desire your own spiritual good. What did Jesus say in the greatest commandment is after the, or the second greatest command, to love your neighbor as what? As yourself, right? That means if you, what's good for your soul, what's the best for your soul is best for your neighbor's soul. We should have the same attitude towards them. Mark it down. That which is best for your soul is best for you. The verses 2 through 5, if you heard the scripture reading, uh, Naomi gives Ruth a very, perhaps very odd to us, a very desperate plan to find rest under one of their redeemers named Boaz. Look at verses 2 through 5. Look, look, look at the plan. After he's finished winnowing barley in the threshing floor, wash therefore, verse 3, anoint yourself, put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. It's kind of strange. So after he works and eats and lays down, just sneak in and lay by his feet. And he'll tell you what to do. Okay. Why is that? Well, we'll, we'll get there. So now we instruct Ruth to adorn herself, right? To put on perfume. I think some texts say put on your finest dress. Like, look presentable, clean yourself up, smell good, look good, prepare yourself to meet Boaz, but don't let him know you're there. Sneak in, he shouldn't know. Ruth is then told to uncover his feet and lie down at his feet, and when he awakes, he will tell you what to do. And look at Ruth says in verse 5, all you say will do. You got it. Just, okay, Ruth must think it's, this is a good idea, right? Ruth desires redemption after all, and Naomi d desires her redemption. This is a great risk that is involved. It's daring attempt to find rest. This is a bold, risky faith, I would argue. It should be noted, however, uh, maybe in passing, 
that this is not, not an act of sexual immorality. Uh, Ruth is portrayed multiple times, and in this chapter, as an honorable woman. She's called a worthy woman by Boaz, and later in this text, uh, she's instructed to lay at his feet, right? Not lay in his bed or lay next to him. And then she's sent away silently. So there's no sexual morality here. There's no, like, this is kind of weird. It's, the Bible's very clear. This is not what's going on. It's something else. Now, I want to show you that the risk here is twofold. Boaz and her reputation. So number one, what if she snuck in and Boaz wakes up and goes, Ruth, I like you, but like, we're just friends. I'm not really into you that way. Or what if he just rejects her? I just, I don't want to get married. You can be a worker, but I don't really want to marry you. What if he doesn't desire her? Or worse, what if Boaz takes advantage of her? She, no one's going to know, right? Who's going to listen to her? She's just a Moabite. I don't care what you think, right? This could all be in vain. She, she, he could be the wrong redeemer, the one that she's not actually looking for. Number two, the threshing floor. This is a rather key place in Israelite culture. I want to give you little window of what this looks like from this commentary. It says this, a threshing floor is a smooth, flat surface that was used in the process of, uh, process of harvesting grain, uh, long before combines, I might add. The harvested grain would be spread over the threshing floor, and then animals like cattle or oxen would be led over it, and they would crush and break the sheaves apart with their hooves. In Ruth chapter 2, if you notice, Ruth would, uh, they got sticks, and they would beat these things apart instead of using uh, the cows. Then the grain would, would be separated from the husk, or the chaff, you might call it, and they would throw it into the air so the wind would blow the chaff away, leaving only the good grain to fall down. This was called winnowing. So this is the work that you would do when you harvest the grain. You would separate the wheat from the chaff, right? This is also worth knowing. This is a very public place. This isn't like your backyard, like, oh, I got a, I got a, a threshing floor just right in the backyard. No, this is a, it's a public place. It's, a, it's an open area. Uh, there was chances of theft. It was very common because, there's, again, there's no fences. That's why Boaz slept because there's no, who's going to guard the grain you shred out? Hopefully you. That's why you got to sleep on it, right? Likewise, it's common for people to just pass through these areas. There's even times where there's things were sold. You, you can even possibly find prostitutes nearby. One commentary has this, this comment saying that it's, it's common to say, well, where can I find these things? Like the threshing floor. It's kind of like your Walmart. You want something, it's probably going to be there. Just go look for it. It's there at the threshing floor. You'll find sellers of things, and you'll find wheat, and you, you can work. There's a lot of things there. So her, her reputation is on the line, and Naomi says, sneak in, lie down his feet, and just be quiet. What if she's seen as a prostitute? Look at, look at Ruth going. We know where she's going. We know who's in there. This could be bad for her. So she risks a lot of things. But their faith, Ruth and Naomi, their faith were in the promises of the Lord as the Redeemer's law says in Leviticus and Deuteronomy 25. They believed that if they could seek a Redeemer according to the Scriptures, this is good. They weren't just saying, ah, let's just fire a shot in the air. No, they read from the Word and acted in faith. Biblical faith is grounded in Scripture. It's not blind faith. It's not just merely guessing. It's grounded in faith. Biblical hope is also grounded in reality, what is known. Christian hope has a distinct flavor of certainty. Someone once put it like this, hope expects what faith accepts. So what you know by faith, you hope with, with you expect it to happen. Uh, let me give an example of what hope not is. So when, when people are sick, I do this too, you probably do it too. What do you say when someone's sick? I hope you feel better, right? 
I hope things get better. Hope it acts okay. Hope it works out. Nothing wrong with that. But in saying that, we don't have any certainty, right? We just, it's just wish, like we literally just think, I mean, I hope so. It's, I hope there's no certainty. There's just wishful thinking. But the Christian hope is sure. Hebrews 6 refers to as an anchor for the soul. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever go home, turn on the faucet, and say, I hope the water's wet today? Well, of course not. You would be a loony. Why not? Because you know the nature of water is to be wet. You know with certainty the water is wet. You expect it to be wet, right? Because you know it. You know for a fact that it's going to be wet. So you expect it to be wet. That's the Christian hope. We know what we accept. We know this is true. We expect it to happen. It's really not just a hoping. It's not a good word. It's an expecting. We, we expect it to be what we know. The Christian hope expects what we know by faith, not what we feel by our feelings. J.C. Ryle said this, Christ's love towards us and not our love towards Christ is the true ground of expectation, the true foundation of hope. So therefore, Christians alone have the hope of redemption. That's what Ruth is looking for is redemption. The scriptures say we have a hope that does not put us to shame. I think everyone can probably testify to this reality in this room as well as those in the world that we all have this gnawing sense, this indwelling gnawing in our heart of there's got to be something better. Things have to work out. They have to work out. There's no way this is as good as it is. This is there's no way. Things have to work out. There will be a day when there won't be any suffering. This, there has to be something. This is the Christian hope. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Paul says, Christ Jesus, our hope in Titus 1. The hope of the Christian goes as deep as the grave and covers all that Jesus is exalted over. So Christ alone is our hope before the Father and beyond the grave. Christian hope is as steady as Christ is enthroned. So I want to ask you a question. Does your heart have a hope in this way? What should we do? How do you get this hope if you're a believer? We should plunge yourself into the ocean of God's hope made manifest in his word. This is how you get all your hope. It's not just by wishful thinking or by dreaming. It's through the word, right? There's no other way. Open the riches of the word and drink, right? It's, this is God's cabin of his jewels. Drink and look and read. This is the hope that we need on dark clouds. What hope do you bring to the sickbed or to a hospital or to tragedy? There's no other hope. It's not, oh, I hope so. It's certainty. You need certainty on your last day. And this is it. Friends, hopelessness does not exist in a Christ-exalted world. Are you aware of that? If Jesus really is risen, reigning, there's no such thing in a Christian worldview as hopelessness. Does that encourage you? Nothing to worry about. Biblically, right? We know this. Thus, do not hope in your hoping. Hope in your Christ, right? Faith then has a true Hope and Ruth is hoping for a redeemer. Look at verses 6 through 15. This is the, the bigger section here. Number two, faith receives a covering. This is the, the crucial point of this entire narrative is this section right here. So now Ruth goes to the threshing floor and waits for Boaz to eat and drink. Look at verses 6 and 7. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry... He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. 
So this is not to be misunderstood as, oh, Boaz ate to his full and ate in a sinful way, nor did he drink in a sinful way. It's just he ate enough food, drank enough wine, and felt, this is pretty good. Time to go to bed. Hard work, good meal, right? There's no sin here. And then what does she do? Well, he's asleep. Time to sneak in, right? It's just, again, it's very risky. She uncovers his feet, lays down probably some of the longest hours of her entire life. Please don't kick me. Your feet smell. Please don't kick me. Your feet smell. Please wake up. Please wake up. I mean, terrifying, right? And then what happens in verse 8? Probably my favorite. Behold, in the entire Bible, might be this one right here. And at midnight, the man was startled. Sure. Turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Hey, oh, free girl, right? Hey, hey, a beautiful woman's at my feet. Okay, what's going on? Ruth then essentially asked him to marry her. Look at verse 9. Who are you? Great greeting, right? I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings, spread your garment over your servant, for you are redeemed. She's saying, I know who you are. I know what you can do. Claim me. Let's get married. Make this garment mine. Marry me. You're a redeemer. Let's make it happen. So she's proposing to Boaz, essentially, right? How easy was dating in Israel? They threw yourself at your feet and just asked you to marry him. So if you're single, Israel is the place to be, it appears. Again, remember, this is a public place, right? She goes to bear possible humiliation, what, what might look like sin, and lays at his feet. She knows the dangers. She believes the consequences. She embraces the humility. And Ruth lies down at his feet under the authority of Boaz. And Ruth says in verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant. So her faith makes her go very low. How low? Well, to his feet, below him, right? It goes under him, to his feet. Whatever you say, I will do. That's, that's, her, that's her desire here. Look at verse, verses 10 through 13 then. Look how Boaz responds. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughters. Again, so we think she's probably younger. He must be older, right, my daughter? You've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you've not gone, gone after a young man, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So he praises her, right? He says, Ruth, you're a worthy woman. So again, this, he, he, even he knows there's nothing weird about this. This is what you do. This is understandable. You're a worthy woman, right? He automatically knows what she's doing and pronounces a blessing over her for her great act of faith. And then he gives her a promise. I am a redeemer. However, there's someone who's closer. So family probably, maybe even age, maybe even just literally like there's someone who's closer to you. You can marry instead of me. Either way, you will be redeemed. If he, if he does it, great. If, if he does not, you will be redeemed. I will do it. As surely as the Lord lives, he says, I will redeem you. So he tells her not to fear, but to have faith. So simply put, faith then is the cure to what? Fear. Right? Faith in, faith in the Lord is the cure to fear, isn't it? Cure to worry. Therefore, lie down until morning. So Stay here where it's safe, and I can protect you. Don't go anywhere. Stay here, and you'll be protected. If you remember in chapter 2, verse 1, what did they describe Boaz as? A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So Boaz is called a worthy man. And you can see this in verses 14 through 16. He's very worthy, right? Look at verses 14. 
So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let, up, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Then he loads her up with grain. So what, is, what does he do? Well, before anyone sees, let's get you out of here. Looks like, to me, he's trying to protect her reputation. Before anyone sees, let's, let's scoot you out. No one's going to know. And we'll load you up with grain. One, for something good for you, but also... If people think you're here, it's because you're here for grain. We'll just send you out well. I know why you're here. Let's send you out well. That's what it seems to be to me. Before anyone could recognize you. He protects her. He shields her against any guilt or shame. He removes any possible blame and sends her away. Full, right? Bring me your garment. I'll fill it with it. He fills it with tons of barley, just tons of food, right? She is under grace as she awaits the redemption, right? He, Ruth is loaded with grace and full of hope. Kind of the Christian life in a picture, isn't it? So who are those who need a covering? Well, you'd probably say, well, sinners. You are correct. Why do sinners need a covering? Why do you think we need to be covered? If you remember Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, Adam and Eve sin. Do you remember what they do after they sin? Do they run out? Lord! We messed up. We're sorry. What do they do? They hide. They literally run and hide, and, what, and they make garments to what? It cover their shame, right? Because sin brings shame automatically. Guilt and shame go hand in hand, right? Hiding, they need a covering, and God, of course, provides a better covering. Well, this is the natural response to sin. When we sin, we hide it. Typically, when we post on Facebook, we post pictures of beautiful babies. We post fun stuff. Do you guys ever post, man, my husband and I got into a big fight this week. Uh, I yelled at him. He cussed at me. That was pretty much it. <laughs> well, no. Why don't you do that? Hopefully, it didn't happen. But also because if it did, it'd be shameful, right? Well, I lied twice, and I got fired from work because I was a jerk. Would you write that? No, you would just, ah, I lost my job, right? You would intentionally cover the bad stuff, right? Because we know there's shame, there's guilt. So we cover it up with our own fig leaves, right? So do you have hidden guilt or sin or shame? Guilt is a heavier burden than the weight that Ruth had to carry of grain. Guilt and shame will disturb you for the rest of your life. If you remember David's great sin that we refer to with Bathsheba, if you remember in Psalm 51, David writes this. Verse 3, my sin is ever before me. If you've ever done something just bad, sinful, you just feel like everyone knows about it. I see it wherever I go. I feel it. I just, it's glaring at me. I just, oh, I can't get away from it. That's the feeling of guilt and, and shame. And all hidden sin actually glares at us, doesn't it? You need a covering for your sin and your shame and your guilt. Ruth came to find a covering under Boaz. The Lord's covering for Ruth was essentially Boaz. Spread your garment. Cover me with your garment, right? That was, that was his instruction to her, or her instruction to him. Please cover me with your garment. The Lord's covering for us is in Christ. Christ covers our shame and our guilt. And notice that Jesus doesn't just cover our guilt or offer a covering, rather. Jesus himself is our covering. He can just offer you, hey, just take this. He is your covering. Christ covers all of our guilt and all of our shame. And the Bible says he presents us without spot or blemish before the Father. Notice again that Boaz calls Ruth a worthy woman. That's the title of Boaz. That's what he is called. 
But now who shares that title with Boaz? Well, Ruth does. Probably the best news of the gospel to, to contemplate is that in Christ, God gives you the same title as his son. He doesn't call you, oh, you're just a little, a little Moabite. You're just a, you're, I mean, you're, you're a servant. We like you. No, no, no. In Christ, the father calls you a son. You get the same title, the same righteousness, the same standing as Christ. For God made him to, who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Never again in Christ does God look at you and say, you are a rotten sinner. You are guilty. It's gone. It's like it never happened. You're covered. He didn't, all he sees is Christ. That's reckoned to you. Hebrews 8.12 says it most helpfully. Simply, I will remember their sins no more. Though your sins were ever before you, in Christ they are never more before him. He removes them as far as the east is from the west. So unconfessed sin, brothers, finds a covering in Christ. How do we do that? Well, it's very simple. 1 John 1, 9, probably a verse you should have burned into your brain would be good. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Do you remember? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How's this covering received? Well, it's by faith. By confessing, we're asking by faith, right? Faith alone. The faith that falls at the feet of Boaz, the faith that falls at the feet of Christ and receives all that he is for us. Faith forsakes all sins, all empty trust, all other hopes, and clings to Christ. Notice that Ruth could not be both in the field and at the feet of Boaz. She couldn't be two places at once. She has to, you got to pick one and marry to it, right? You can't just be in the field and be, you, you got to choose one and cling to it. Well, likewise, friends, as Christians, we cannot be both in the field of sin and at the feet of Christ. If Christ is not your covering, find him today. Today's the day, right? Fall before him in humility and faith, and he will restore and claim you as his own. And probably my favorite chapter in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 8, is yours. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The answer is supposed to be none. It is God who justifies, right? There's no charge. There's no guilt against you. It's all gone. So as a Christian, then, how do you live? Because if you guys are believers, you're going to sin probably today, probably the next hour, maybe in traffic, maybe at home, in your heart. How do you live with, man, why don't I keep doing that? How do you live like that? Well, if the Lord no longer sees you as a Moabite, neither shall you. You are bound to Christ, united to him under his covering. So live the Christian life in freedom from sin and guilt. When you sin, and you will, and you fall short, we do. What should you do? Confess your sins, turn from them, and look to Christ, right? 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, not your righteousness, but Christ. That's what you look to, right? He's your advocate before the Father. I want to give you a word of encouragement because you, we all do this, including me. I want you to be warned. I want you to be aware of unbiblical standards of guilt and shame that we heap upon ourselves. Real guilt is only what the Bible says real guilt is. It's sin, right? It's not sinful. There's no guilt there, right? Therefore, feelings of guilt for how 
things that we regret. Let me give you an example. We are, we are prone to blame ourselves and heap responsibility to honor ourselves for the things the Bible doesn't say you're actually responsible for. Let me give you some examples. Whether it be our kids, our jobs, our income, our church outcomes, whatever it may be, we are responsible for what God commands us to do in faith and nothing else. Isn't that relieving? If you do what God tells you to do biblically, and you think, man, it didn't work out the way I wanted it to, I must have jacked it up again. I can't do anything right. Is it possible that, that you did something wrong? Well, sure. We all sin and fall short. I'm chief of sinners. I know that. However, do not charge to your account what God does not charge to your account. We plant, we water, and God gives the growth. C.S. Lewis said it this way. It is not your business to succeed, but to do right. When you have done so, the, Lord, the, the rest lies with God. So don't heap unbiblical guilt on yourself. You will bury yourself. It will happen. You will crush yourself for something that God doesn't guilt you for. Cast it. Use biblical categories. And find rest. Because those sins that you have to do are already, what? They're forgiven. They're gone. They're paid for, right? It's good news. Number three, faith waits with patience. Look at verses 16 through 18. So she's sent off with all this grain. She lays at his feet and Boaz goes, you're going to be fine. Either me or this next guy will. You'll be fine. Sends her off with grain. And verse 16, when she, Ruth, came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. So actually in verse 16, uh, so your, all of our Bibles say, um, how did you do or how's it going? But the, the literal Hebrew uh, says, who are you? As in, are you Miss Ruth or Mr. Boaz? How'd it go, Ruth? Success over there at the heap? She's asking for, how'd it go, right? Boaz did not send her back empty-handed, right? He, he sent her back with tons of grain. Do you remember what Naomi referred to herself as in chapter one? So after family died and she was alone with Ruth. She came back to Bethlehem. Do you remember what she said? Chapter 1, verse 20. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. I left Bethlehem full. The Lord has brought me back empty. But now does Naomi look very empty? She has Ruth. She has a mountain of grain. This, this is day two. Day one, harvest a lot. Day two, you get more grain. Notice God's sweet providence. He takes care of her. He genuinely takes care of Ruth and Naomi. You can, you can just say, oh, it's, it's heaven. Well, yeah, it's true. Heaven makes amends for all, but he actually takes care of her. The Lord does wound, but he always heals. He fills again. He sends tokens of his love to us all along the way. He cares for Naomi and Ruth in their distress. God's future grace will swallow up every bitter root that he sows. Lamentations 3 says, Though he caused grief, he will again. He will again. It's, it's not, that's real hope, isn't it? He will, he will, he will again have compassion. In your life, I want to give you something you should do. In your life, you should note the Lord's acts of kindness. I genuinely think Christians should write things down in a notebook, something. This happened to me. Lord is very kind. You should write it down because one day you're going to think, he's never good to me. What should you do? 
Go to, that, go to this book, your Bible, then go to the other book. Man, he's been good for years. What am I complaining about? Treasure these up in your heart, in a book. And by faith, may we always think what Psalm 30, verse 5 says, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Ruth, or Naomi then instructs Ruth in verse 18, to what? To wait. Just trust him. Wait. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So just slow down. Don't worry. It's going to happen. Again, this is actual faith. Faith waits with patience, right? It rests. It lays at the feet and stands at the ready, right? Ruth and Naomi have no other options, so they rest in the care of God's kind providence. They don't rest in the cares of the world, but in the character of God. And God is in the habit of sowing patience into our hearts, which is hard because our heart works against patience because we get Amazon two-day shipping and we get instant Netflix right now. And God God says, no, 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 slow down. I'm going to work into your heart, which is contrary to your heart, which is patience. He works against our natures to nurture our new nature. Imagine the feelings of Ruth. You have nothing. You think, man, what if it's not Boaz? What if I got married some other dork? I like Boaz. I don't want to marry someone else. What if it falls through? I mean, what if, right? All these what ifs. Or maybe Naomi, well, what if it doesn't work? What if maybe Ruth dies? I don't know. What, what's going to happen? Like, she's scared. Like, what if, right? Waiting is hard. And you, you guys do this too. You play these. 50 question games, don't you? Well, what if this? Well, what if this? Well, what if, but how, but what, do you guys do that? You, you, you never say what if. Well, God bless you. I do all the time. Well, what if this happens? What if this happens? We, we get panic. We, we get like, what if? We get confused. There's a lot of studies that show that about 91% of your what ifs, your worries are actually false alarms. They will never happen. So one out of every 10 things you worry about will happen. It's pretty good news. And yet we drive ourselves into despair for basically no reason. We must then live by faith and future grace, by patience, sitting at the master's feet, knowing that he will bring it to pass. Isaiah 40 verse 31 says this, and you know this text, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So waiting brings Guarantee, it shall, it will, right? It's a guarantee. So wait upon the Lord. Boaz instructs Ruth, fear not. Don't fear, but wait. One reason your passage that is particularly dear to me about waiting and about trusting the Lord. It's in Luke chapter 12, starting verse 22, it says this. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They, have, they neither have storehouses nor barns, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And what you view by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life. If you then are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is your Father's good pleasure to, to, to prosper your soul. Like a little kid, may we hold tight to God's grip with our small hand of faith. So those are three marks of faith. I want to give you one closing application. How should we respond with faith, with Boaz, with knowing these things? I want to take you to the very beginning. How did Ruth know about Boaz? How did she know? Did she figure it out by herself? No, she was told. Someone told Naomi, right? Planned the whole thing. Said, go, go do this, go do this, go do that. See ya. There's a redeemer. That's his name. Go, go over there. We should therefore likewise respond with sharing our faith. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, John the Baptist talks about the wheat and the chaff and the threshing floor by saying this. His, Jesus, Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the barn with the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, Jesus, John's not talking about Jesus. Jesus is not a farmer. He's not out in the backyard farming somewhere. This is about heaven and hell. These are real matters. The hour of the threshing floor is now. Jesus is and will separate the wheat from the chaff. True believers from false believers, or from non-believers, you could say. He will gather his own into this barn. The rest he will throw into the unquenchable flames of hell. Even now, sinners, do you realize, are standing on the threshing floor of judgment. Are you aware of that? 150 people die every single day. All of them stand on a threshing floor. Are you aware of that? Who explained this to Ruth? Well, it was Naomi. Praise God for Naomi. I want to ask you a question. I want you to step back from yourself, look at yourself, from outside yourself, look at yourself, in light of this question. When was the last time you explained to somebody the gospel? When was the last time you gave somebody a gospel tract? Let me ask you another question, perhaps a more piercing one. If the expansion of the gospel was left ultimately to you, to me, to us, how far would the gospel go? How far would have gone the last 10 years? If the spreading of the gospel was left up to this church, how far would it go? How far has it gone? May God forgive us and me for seeking other, we obey other commandments, but when it comes to this one, we go, ah, we can't. May God forgive us for that, for not loving our neighbors while loving God more. In 2015, there, there, there was a firefighter in New York City named Michael Johnson. He was nicknamed Tragic Johnson. Why is that? For his refusal to fight fires. Uh, Earth to Johnson, you're a firefighter. When called to a fire, he would stand outside the blaze as others went into the building, even leaving a three-man job to his two friends. He would stay out. He would pretend he, he had to run back 
to the truck. I, I got to fill my oxygen tank. I forgot. And he filled up. Then he would just stay out and wait. And instead, he would never enter the buildings. The news article that wrote it starts off the article this way, quote, he's a firefighter in name only. Michael D. Johnson won't fight fires. Instead, he stays on the sidelines. Michael D. Johnson won't fight fires. Instead, he stays on the sidelines. Brothers, may we reject sidelines. Reject them. Instead, may we do what Richard Baxter says. A foolish physician he is and a most unfaithful friend that will let a sick man die for fear of troubling him. And cruel wretches are we to our friends that will rather suffer them to go quietly to hell than we will anger them or hazard our reputation with them. I want to give you a word of encouragement. Isaiah 41 verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. At Christmas time, we remember Jesus' name is Emmanuel. And what does that mean? God with us. What are we scared of? You're not going alone. Never have. This Christmas, I hope you would see everybody as they really are. A soul that will last forever. See everybody either, either as a fellow missionary or a mission field. And by grace, point them to the Redeemer. Exodus chapter 4, verse 12. Now therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Let's pray.